Daniel chapter 11 is our text for this evening, but before we begin, I wanted you to turn, if you will, to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I was meditating upon the phrase, good and faithful servant. What is a good and faithful servant of the Lord? The one who will be told those words, enter in to my kingdom. It isn't so much about how much we do, for we know that salvation isn't based upon our works. And yet, what we do is significant and important to God. Especially in the days and times in which we live, because if we pay any attention to what is going on in the world today, and I would hope that we all are, and we pay attention to what Jesus said when he was on this earth walking and before he ascended back into heaven to be at the right hand of the throne of God, his Father. He said, these things shall be happening before I come. And so it is of utmost importance for every believer in Jesus Christ to take hold of the understanding of all the standards that God has given us to live by. And in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30, where Moses expresses through the, of course, the anointing of the Holy Spirit and through the very giving forth the Word of God, he speaks about blessings and curses. And of course, he speaks primarily to the children of Israel and initially to the children of Israel. But he says, I guess we can begin at verse about verse 11. There's probably a lot of stuff before that, but. uh, He says, for this commandment, which I command thee this uh, day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou should say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou should say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. But he says the word, notice what he says, but the word is very nigh or near unto thee. In thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. You see that? It is near you that you will do it. That you do the word of God. Not argue with God what the Word is or what isn't. That you do the Word of God. The Word of God is very clear. It's very plain. And then he says this. And this... This is the the line that is drawn. See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. 
In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away so that thou wilt not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. And then he says something that is of great importance, an ominous, 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 ominous statement. He says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have said before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. That both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, and that thou mayest obey his voice, and that thou mayest cleave unto him. For he is thy life and the length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord, which the Lord swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. And as, 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 as great a statement as that is to the children of Israel, it is as great a statement to us as believers today. Though we know that we live under the very grace of our Almighty God through the work of Jesus Christ, this is God's word for us today. And it's something that we need to take to heart. It's something we need to take very seriously about how we live our lives. Because as we see the world around us today, it is rejecting the things of God. It is saying, God, you're not important. In fact, we don't even believe you exist. Even though that's a lie, just read Romans chapter 1 and it tells us that everybody knows there's a God. We just don't want to believe it. Because we don't want him as telling us what to do. You know, that's the flesh. That's, that's the way we were before we came to Jesus. So, more than ever now, the believer in Jesus Christ has to say, you know what, I'm going to take God seriously. I want to take his word seriously. Especially since he can come at any moment. I want to be doing the things that please God when he comes. I want to be doing that. So, you know what, we're not here to please the world. We're not here to get brownie points from the world. We're here to serve Almighty God until the day that Christ comes. And then after that, you can rest. Then you can rest. Rest for a long time. That's called eternity. All right, Daniel chapter 11. How to get that all in there because, you know, Daniel chapter 11, what the, the portion that we're going to study tonight is mostly history. And I know that we did a little history last week, plus... Uh, some current things and events. But we have to remember that Daniel, from chapter 9 at the very end, 24 through 27, all the way through to the end of of the book of Daniel, is all about the end times. It's all about what's happening even today. So we're going to see that. But we have to see how things began in history and how in history things are going to be fulfilled. There's near fulfillments and then there's later fulfillments. And this is just the way we see the Bible set up from Genesis to Revelation. So we go back to our text from last week, and we'll we'll just deal with it briefly, but we need to deal with it to get into chapter 11, verse 5. We look at the first four verses. Also, I, in the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and to strengthen him. Now, these are the words 
of Gabriel, the, the, uh, the angel who was uh, strengthening, actually, uh, the leadership of Persia. And, and the reason is, and we've kind of br- briefly talked about it, but God is in control of all things, and therefore, even though there is a, a uh, one of these uh, beings that is over Persia to cause havoc, you know, God is still in control. So he, 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 he comforted Cyrus to do what? He comforted Cyrus, the king of Persia, to allow Israel to go back to the land. To, in other words, to allow the exiles to go back to the land. That would have gone completely against uh, the devil and his angels. That's, that's not their purpose, but see, God's in control. So even this angel, along with Michael, if you remember, were giving that uh, uh, help even to comfort the, uh, the Persians to have a soft heart for Israel because everything is about Israel. And now will I show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the four shall be far richer than they all. And we've talked about those kings already, but we're going to talk about one of them, the fourth, today a little bit. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece or Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And we know that to be um, Alexander, Alexander uh, the Great. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. This is all historic. We already know that from history. And not to his posterity, which means it, the, the, the kingdom was not going to his family, nor according to his dominion which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. Okay. So, there is, again, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, there is a great cosmic war. We don't see it. We talked about it uh, when we, we dealt with Romans, I'm, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, 10 through 18, when we talked about the armor of God, that, uh, there, that we do not war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and and, and spiritual rulers of darkness in high places and all of that, which is, again, the spirit world we can't see, but it, it does exist and takes place. So there's this great cosmic war being fought for the souls of people, both by the forces of good and the forces of evil. It is a warfare that is being waged by the angels of God and the demons of Satan who are locked in a continual battle to influence the behavior of people and of nations. So we caught this glimpse of this spiritual warfare in the last chapter, chapter 10, when Daniel was praying. And Daniel talks about this fact that, you know, he was, he was praying, he was fasting, and, but he struggled, he, he was troubled for 21 days. And then, of course, we're told by the angel that there was this battle going on between this angel and the, uh, what is called the prince of, of Persia. In other words, the, the angelic being, or actually in this, in this case, the demonic being that was, that was overseeing uh, the affairs of, of Persia, or at least allowed to, even though the Lord uh, has all control over that. But uh, the context of his praying, and, and this is something we, we didn't touch on fully, but the context of his praying brings us back to chapter 9, and it brings us back to the prelude to the prophecies concerning Israel in the latter times, or what is called the last days. And that's Daniel 9.24. And I, I bring you back only for this 
first part of the verse. Seventy weeks or seventy sevens, as we already talked about, 490 years. Seventy weeks of years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. So the angel has been given this message to give to Daniel. And he tells Daniel, listen, you, uh, there is this, this time frame. There is this time frame that I'm going to deal with your people, which is Israel, and your holy city, which is Jerusalem. And then he, he tells them why. To finish the transgression, which of course is to complete the, um, the discipline, as it were, the, the, you know, the uh, uh, punishment, as it were, that was brought upon, the judgment, I should say, that was brought upon Israel for their neglect of God's Word. That's why they, they had to be put into uh, this uh, captivity for all, this year, all, all these years. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, uh, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. But the important thing was that this is about Israel and Jerusalem. And, we, and we, can't, we can't add the church into that, as I've said many times, because the church is not, it, this is not uh, a part of what, what is going on here. We can't put the church into this picture, in other words. That's why Israel and Jerusalem are, are uh, so important to be, be set apart in our minds and our hearts by what's going on. So, what was the object then? Here's, here's the question. What was the object of the demonic forces in wanting to stop Daniel's prayer and prevent it from being answered. And by the way, think about this. Are there things that are going to be working against you to divert your prayers or to, uh, you know, to uh, distract you in prayer? Would, would you say there's a whole bunch of things that happen? As a matter of fact, many times we're not only distracted from prayer, we're distracted from praying. And all of a sudden, we, get, we, we want to sit, spend a little time in praying. The next thing we know is, you know what, I've got to call this guy. I've got to call that person. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And, and all of a sudden, we don't even pray at all. So, just think about that. But, but, but think, here's Daniel trying to pray for 21 days. And then uh, through that whole time frame, there's all these attacks going on. So, what was the, the objective then of those attacks? Well, remember that his prayer was a plea for the Lord to protect the Jews who had returned to their land. Remember, Cyrus again allowed the, some of the Jews to go back into the land. So he prayed for the Lord to protect those who had returned to the land to rebuild their nation and to rebuild the temple. Now, Daniel knew that the believing remnant had returned to fulfill their God-given purpose of being God's means of sending His Holy Word and the Messiah into the world. That has always been Israel's uh, calling. It has always been, been Israel's calling to bring God's Word and Messiah to the people. So the enemy doesn't want that to happen. So he always works against that. So that's part of the objective. Now, but I want to, I want to bring to my, I want to bring something to your minds and hearts about what I just said. I said that Daniel knew that the believing remnant, the believing remnant had returned. There were many Jews that returned, but there was only a believing remnant. 
Now, this is going to be quite significant uh, in these last days. Because there are a lot of people who say they're believers in Jesus Christ, right? They say they're believers in Jesus Christ, and then they go off and say, but you know what, I really... I really believe, you know, we ought to, we ought to really do this and do that and, and kind of, you know, they, they kind of follow the political correctness of the world and they say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but. Well, don't get me started with that little phrase. I'm a Christian, but. But what? You're either a believer or you're not. There's, there's no middle ground here. This is the problem that, uh, well, actually this is what the enemy has done to try to weaken the church. So there is a believing remnant today that says, you know what, just as I read from Deuteronomy today, you know, God says, I've I've put two things out before you, blessings and cursings, life and death. But God says, choose life. You can't have both. You can't have both. You can't live for the world and live for Jesus. You live in the world, but you're not of the world. That's what, that's what we're told in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, Apostle John. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. So we're a believing remnant. And, 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 and so there was a believing remnant in the time of Israel going back out of Babylon, back into, back into uh, Jerusalem and into uh, Israel. So this is the reason that the enemy and his forces sought to end Daniel's prayer. If he could destroy the Jewish people. And how many times has the enemy tried to destroy the Jewish people? But if he could destroy the the, the Jewish people, he could stop God's purpose. Because he could prevent Messiah from being born and keep God's word from being completely fulfilled. And this is what we see throughout Scripture. I mean, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Cain and Abel. We can start there. Then we can work our way through all the books of the the Old Testament. In particular, the times of the kings. Where there was one generation that just barely hung on to keep the seed of Messiah alive. And then there was the time of Xerxes or Ahasuerus, who we're going to talk about here in just a moment. The time when Esther had become the queen. And she was there for such a time as this. That's what she was told. And there was a man there named Haman who served under Ahasuerus Whose, whole, whose sole purpose was to destroy the Jews. I mean, not just to kill some of them, but to destroy them and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Sound familiar? It's happened many times after that. This we see throughout Scripture, but it is evident, listen, it is evident in Revelation chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Revelation 12, verse 4 says, and his tail. Now remember that this is, this is figurative, but it, it has full meaning on what is going on and what has happened. It says his tail, speaking of the, the tail of the dragon, uh, who is Satan, 
His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, which is not talking about stars, but talking about uh, uh, angelic beings that uh, would follow him, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood, notice this, the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So the woman is Israel. In, in Revelation 12, the woman is Israel. The child to be born is the Messiah. And what is Satan doing? He's waiting to destroy Messiah. Doesn't want him to be born. Notice next verse. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And where, when would that be? In, 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 his, uh, in the millennial kingdom. Not, uh, when he came, he came as a child. When he was born, you know, we do all the thing about the Christmas, you know, uh, marrying child and all that kind of stuff. Well, okay. well, he didn't have a rod of iron then, but he's going to have a rod of iron later. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And of course, we know when that would take place. And so in review, as the world power passed from the Babylonians to the Medo-Persian Empire, so too did the attitude pass from hostility toward the Jews to one that was more favorable. And I'll tell you that Belshazzar, who was the, you know, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, he did not like the Jews. He didn't love the Jews. You know, he had Daniel around, but where was Daniel usually? They had to go get Daniel to interpret the things that uh, were going on there before the Medo-Persians came and, and, uh, and uh, attacked Babylon and, and overthrew the empire of, of the uh, Babylonians. So uh, when they came in, the Medo-Persians, of course, as we've talked about Darius, as well as Cyrus, they were more favorable toward the Jews. So Gabriel strengthened, as we saw in verse 1, he strengthened Darius or Darius at the beginning uh, of his reign in Babylon. That's verse 1. As for verse 2, looking back to Daniel chapter 10, that vision occurred in the third year of Cyrus the king. So here in chapter 11, we see Daniel being told of four kings that would come after Cyrus. Uh, and I mentioned them last week and we've talked about them before. Cambyses, son of Cyrus, uh, Pseudo-Smyrdas, uh, again, these are words, you can even look them up if you want on the internet, they're there. Um, Darius the first, Histopus, uh, which was the third king after, um, after Cyrus. And then the fourth king, which I said was the most important here, and that's Xerxes. Xerxes, we've heard of, Artaxerxes or Xerxes, is, is a king historically who was the richest, the most powerful of these four kings. And as we mentioned in our study last time, Xerxes had taken an army to defeat the Grecians. Now, Xerxes is the leader of the Persian army. I think I mentioned to you that movie 300. I mean, it's kind of gross and, you know, bloody and all that kind of stuff. But some of you don't have to raise your hand, but some of you have probably seen it. Uh, you know, but anyway, but it's historical. And, and uh, so it's not ex- the exact uh, fight, but I'm just giving you... The, the, the setup of the, the two in battle. That was Xerxes and the uh, Persians with the, uh, the Greeks or the Macedonians or uh, even the Hellenists at the time. So he takes his army to fight the Greeks or the Grecians. 
Now he does defeat the armies of Greece. I mentioned this last time. He does defeat the armies of Greece, but he wasn't able to conquer Greece. He defeats them, but he's not able to conquer them. Can't come in really fully and take over this, this whole land. But then came Alexander, verse 3. Alexander the Great. And all the kingdoms that he conquered were never given over, as I said, to his family, but were seized by his four generals, and his empire was divided into four sections. Divided toward the four winds, as the text says in the Bible. Two of these generals will be considered in the next section of our text. So let's read verses 5 through 8. And here's where history comes in. And I'm, I'm gonna, but, but here's what I want to talk about history today. I'm going to give you history, but it's history that was predicted nearly 400 years before it happens. Or 300 years before it happens. History predicted by Daniel, given to him by an angel messenger of God, so, you know, full-on comes from God. He says, this, this is what's going to happen. Every critic of Daniel, every critic of the book of Daniel, actually critics of the whole Bible, but critics especially of Daniel will say, no, Daniel couldn't have written this. He couldn't have known about all these things happening. It had to have been written somewhere around 166 B.C. Really? Well... Something of great interest here is that if that's really the case, then why is it that in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was done in 220 B.C., that came from the Hebrew and translated into the Greek. So how can then all of a sudden say, well, you know, somebody wrote it, in 166 because it all, all these things had already happened no but it was already written in the Greek I mean it was already written in the Hebrew it was already written way before so how can you say it was it was something that that happened that's why uh, that's why I said before just listen to Jesus because I think Jesus would know don't you think I think Jesus would really know uh, when he says uh, listen to the prophet Daniel you know as Daniel the prophet said about the abomination of desolation, which is here in the book of Daniel, Jesus said, Daniel wrote it, therefore we should trust Jesus more than these uh, higher critics uh, that have been living for the last 150 or so years. Okay, let's go to verse 5. Here we go. And the king of the south shall be strong. By the way, that's the king of Egypt. Egypt. I've given you a chart. I'm not going to go on charts today, but I'll I'll just kind of tell you the king of the south was Egypt. Uh, The king of the south shall be strong in one of his princes, and he shall be strong above him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. By the way, I'm going to explain all this as we go along. And in the end of the years, uh, and in the end of years, they shall join themselves together. The prince, by the way, go back to five. It says, and one of his princes, the king of the south shall be strong and one of his princes That's actually speaking of the king of the north, and I'll show you why in a moment. Now, go back to verse 6. And in the end of years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. So there's the king of the north. That's that other uh, thing. So Daniel 5, or or 11 verse 5, is telling us they they were kind of at odds, but now they're kind of come together, you know. Uh, They must have listened to the Beatles song, you know, come together, and they started, you know, you know. 
friendly. But she shall not retain the power of the arm. Don't worry about that, I'll explain it. Neither shall he stand nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. But out of a branch of her roots shall one stand up in his estate, which shall come with an army, and shall enter into the fortress of the king of the north, and shall deal against them, and shall prevail, and shall also carry captives into Egypt their gods, uh, with their princes, and with their precious vessels of silver and of gold, and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Wow, what are we going to do about all that? Well, let's, let's start. Here's the history. Now this is written hundreds of years before. It happens, but it happened. The king of the south, the king of the south was Ptolemy, P-T-O, by the way, if you want to look it up, it's P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, Ptolemy. Not Ptolemy, but Ptolemy. But it starts with a P, so if you're going to look it up, it's P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. His name was Ptolemy the first Soter, S-O-T-E-R, that was kind of a title name. And it seems that for a time, that, now that's the king of the south, Ptolemy. So the Ptolemies were in the south. And it seems for a time that Seleucus, and when you hear the Seleucids or the Seleucus, that's the north, that's Syria. The Seleucids settled in the area of Syria. They're the biggest and largest of the, uh, of the, uh, the four generals. So the king of the south was Ptolemy, and it seems for a time Seleucus, the first Nicator, had an alliance with Ptolemy. In fact, he was Ptolemy's general until Seleucus gained the area of Syria and Mesopotamia, becoming stronger than the king of, south, of the south, who was initially more powerful. And that's what uh, verse, uh, verse 5 was talking about. And that's when they had the struggle, okay? So it is in this passage now that a peace pact was made between these two kingdoms. So now move on to the next king, Ptolemy II, and his, uh, his name was Philadelphus, which, which means brother, brotherly love, Philadelphus, interestingly enough. Ptolemy II Philadelphus, who was the king of Egypt from 285 to 246 B.C., he would give his daughter Berenice, B-E-R-E-N-I-C-E, like Berenice, but Berenice is the way it's pronounced. He would give his daughter Berenice in marriage to Antiochus II Theos, the king of Syria, who, who ruled from 262 to 246. Don't worry about the dates. You can get the CD later if you really want to look it all up. You can trust me, but you can look it up if you want. Anyway, so he gives his daughter Berenice to this Antiochus II, who was also the grandson of Seleucus I, Nicator. There was only one problem. The problem was that this Antiochus, or Antiochus, was already married. Now, isn't that interesting? He was already married. They're pagans, but they're married, and they're honoring marriage. And not redefining it. Oh, just have to throw that in. Sorry. Just an interesting thing. Because there, there's a war that comes out of all of this. So, <clears throat> here it is. He divorced his wife and put her away and married Berenice around 250 B.C. Now, 
This marriage was for political reasons and nothing else, as we shall see. So as soon as Ptolemy dies, <coughs> Antiochus feels he is no longer under obligation to remain with Berenice, and thus he divorces Berenice, and he takes back his former wife. Now get this, his wife's name was Laodice, L-A-O-D-I-C-E. There's a, there's a word in the scripture, Laodicea. It was named after her, Laodicea. Laodice, interesting. Laodicea is uh, symbolic of the uh, lukewarm church, by the way, but that's another story. That's for another time. So he takes back his wife, Laodice. And thus, as Daniel said, she shall not retain the power of the arm. In other words, this is speaking of Berenice, she doesn't retain the power of her authority. But Laodice never forgot what her husband did. And so she had Berenice, Berenice's son, and all of her attendants murdered. And then, to top it all off, she poisoned her husband. He took her back and then she poisons him. This is a soap opera, isn't it? All right. Well, we see sometimes those things. And thus, as Daniel said, and this is why Daniel said there, neither shall he stand, neither shall his authority stand. So this Antiochus went the way of Berenice, her children, and her servants. So with the murder of Antiochus... The king of the north, Laodice's son, Seleucus II, Callinicus, came to the throne. Just listen, there's a bunch of names here, but you know, it's really interesting how this, this all has been predicted long before it happens. So Callinicus came to the throne in 246 to 227 BC. So now in the south, Egypt, we see Berenice's brother. His, her brother's name was Ptolemy, Ptolemy III, Yorgetes. Uh, who, re- who reigned from 242 to 221 B.C. in Egypt as the king of Egypt. And he came to a- avenge the death of his sister, and so he attacks the northern kingdom and he, de- he defeats them. That's verse 7 of our text. That's verse 7. He attacks the north and he defeats them. So as verse 8 tells us now, Ptolemy III would return to Egypt with hundreds of idols and thousands of talents of silvers. And also the king of the, of the south would continue more years than the king of the north, which is what history tells us. See, Daniel tells us that, but then later on it happens. Seleucus II Callinicus died in a riding accident while Ptolemy III reigned in Egypt for six years after that, exactly as Daniel stated, exactly actually as the, as the Lord gave to Daniel this truth. So now we've got to move on because of the history here. Uh, 9, 10, uh, verses 9 and 10. So the king of the south shall come into his kingdom and shall return into his own land. But his son shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces. And one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and be stirred up even to his fortress. So with the victory of Ptolemy III against Callinicus, the king of the north, he now controlled Israel, because let me tell you why we're studying this. The king of the south, king of the north, back and forth, back and forth through where? Through the land of Israel. This is why 
God does not deal with Macedonia and he doesn't deal with Thracia, the other two kingdoms. Only these two. Why? Because Israel sits in the middle of them. And it's something that's going to happen in the days in which we live. Think about that. So now it is Callinicus. I'm sorry, uh, Ptolemy, the, Egypt, the Egyptian, that controls Israel. But this is not going to last long. Callinicus had two sons. Seleucus III soldier, who died shortly after his reign, 227 to 223 B.C., didn't last long. His second son was Antiochus III, or we call him Antiochus Magnus, Antiochus the Great, who became king of the north and reigned from 223 to 187 B.C. Now, Callinicus tried to get the land back that was lost in this battle, but he failed. But his sons, and in particular Antiochus Magnus, swept through Israel, listen, with 75,000 soldiers, and was able to penetrate all the way to the southern fortress, thus restoring uh, to Syria the territory as far south as Gaza. Uh, we heard Gaza in the news again this week. Uh, so if you're keeping up with daily happenings in, in the area of Israel, uh, this is the area right next to Israel called Gaza. And then in verse 11 it says, And the king of the south shall be moved with choler, which means he's moved with a, an anger for rage. An anger for rage. That's how deep excuse me, this, this, this choler is. The, the, the king of the south shall be moved with choler and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north, and he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. <clears throat> and when he has taken away the multitude, his heart shall be lifted up, and he shall cast down many ten thousands, but he shall not be strengthened by it. So at the time of Antiochus the Great's invasion... Ptolemy the fourth, now the, the fourth Ptolemy, uh, his, 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 uh, his name was Philopater, was the king of the south. And he was not at all happy with what had taken place. He would be moved with angry rage to raise up an army of 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants, yes, elephants, that were used as beasts of burden and battering rams. Ptolemy IV was successful in his attack. And history tells us, and if I'm not mistaken, I believe there was somebody helping out. I think his name was Hannibal. I will talk about him another time. But Ptolemy IV was successful in his attack. Remember Hannibal? He had, he had elephants too. So I just, the thought came to mind. I, every time I go by a zoo, I think of Hannibal. You know. Just kidding. Uh, Ptolemy IV was successful in his attack. And so, where, where am I? Okay, so... History tells us that Antiochus the Great lost 10,000 infantry, 300 cavalry, and five elephants in battle. In fact, the historian Jerome <clears throat> tells us that Antiochus lost his entire army and was almost captured as he fled to the desert. But Ptolemy was not strengthened in his victory. Now, why fight a battle, win a battle, and not be strengthened by it? This is kind of interesting. Because that's what, the, that's what the text says. He wasn't strengthened by his victory. He, he, he was not strengthened in his victory 
because he gained no land, but he only enraged Antiochus Magnus. And another reason that he didn't take advantage of defeating the Syrian army is that he wanted to get back to Egypt. He wanted to get back to his luxurious lifestyle. He wanted to get back to his licentious lifestyle in Egypt because that was more important to him. And again, that's something history records. So in verse 13 then, it says, For the king of the north shall return, and shall set forth a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come after certain years with a great army and with much riches. And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south, also the robbers of thy people. You might want to underline the robbers of thy people. Uh, shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and cast up a mount, and take the most fenced cities, and the arms of the south shall not withstand, neither his chosen people, neither shall there be any strength to withstand. Now what does all that mean? It was some 13 years after Antiochus' defeat of the hand, at the hand of Ptolemy IV that he returned towards Egypt, this time with a greater army. History tells us that Philip of Macedon even helped Antiochus. And this time he gathered to his side some apostate Jews, the robbers of thy people. That was directed to Daniel. The robbers of thy people. And thus in 199 B.C., the king of the north defeated the southern kingdom. He had enlisted a number of Jewish people to help him out in this. And then in verses 16 through 19, we're almost done with the history part, okay? But he that cometh against him shall do according to his own will, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land... What is the glorious land? Israel. Which by his hand shall be consumed. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him, thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her. But she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. The daughter of women there that's mentioned, I'll, I'll just give you a, a quick I'll get, I'll get ahead of myself. Cleopatra. Y'all heard of her? Y'all heard of her? Okay. We all, we all, call, her, we all call her, you know, Egyptian, but, but actually she was from, from this, uh, you know, uh, mixture of the, 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 of the four kingdoms of, of Greece. He shall give him the daughter of women corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. I'll explain that. After this shall he turn his face unto the isles and shall take many. But a prince for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. Without his own reproach he shall cause it to turn upon him. And then he shall turn his face toward the fort of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. So, to explain this, Antiochus captured the glorious land Israel. And even though he treated the Jewish mercenaries who joined forces with him with favor... They and the nation were under his control. Israel was still under control. They, they, they did not have their own national identities, you know, to, to some extent. Uh, they, they didn't have their leadership. They were still under someone else. Uh, the nation did not receive its freedom. Antiochus then tried to infiltrate the southern kingdom by giving his daughter Cleopatra in marriage to the Egyptian king Ptolemy IV Epiphanes, 
who ruled from 2004, um, 2004 to 204 BC to 181 BC. That would have been a long time ago. And Cleopatra was only a child at this time. She was just a child when he, she was given to this, uh, to this king. Now, Antiochus thought that his daughter would assist him and do things that would be favorable to his kingdom. But in reality, just the opposite occurred when Cleopatra sided with her husband, Ptolemy, instead of her father, Antiochus. So now that Antiochus captured the area around Israel, he set his sights on the coastlands. He wanted to go back and get all of Greece and the Mediterranean islands. By this time now, Rome is beginning to rise. So in 191 B.C., Antiochus was defeated by the Romans in Greece and was forced to return, as it says in our text right here, toward the fort of his own land. That means to the fortress of his own land. John Walvoord puts it this way, and I quote, Antiochus the Great, who could have gone down in history as one of the great conquerors of the ancient world if he had been content to leave Greece alone, instead fulfilled the prophecy of verse 19 in that he had to, re- he had to return to his own land defeated and broken. And Antiochus' life ended tragically when needing finances for his treasury. I mean, this guy's looking for some kind of help because he, he's just power hungry now. And he's losing everything. And, and, and so now he kind of just assembling, you know, armies and stuff. And so he needs finances for his treasury. Well, Antiochus was killed trying to plunder and pillage a temple which was dedicated to Jupiter in the land of Elam. Remember what Elam is? Persia. It was actually in Shushan, in Iran. That's where Antiochus died. And he was just a common thief by then. So now in verse 20 it says, and this is where we're going to end here tonight in just a moment. And then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. The IRS of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed neither in anger nor in battle. Now who is this? Well, Antiochus the Great was succeeded by his son, Seleucus the Fourth Philopater. 187 to 176 BC. According to 2 Maccabees, which is a, which is a, uh, uh, not in the, in the uh, canon of Scripture, uh, but in 2 Maccabees 3, verses 7 through 40, we see a, tradi- a, a traitorous Jew named Simon who sent back information to Seleucus that the temple in Jerusalem contained enough treasure to meet all the king's needs. So you see, Seleucus was forced by Rome to pay a thousand talents annually for injuries caused by his father's battle against them. So we see how the tide is turning toward Rome. So he sent Heliodorus to Jerusalem to take the treasures of the temple. Now Otto Zockler, the German theologian, points out, he says, soon after Heliodorus was dispatched to plunder the temple, Seleucus was suddenly and mysteriously removed. And this explains the statement, within a few days he shall be destroyed. Possibly by poison administered to him by the same Heliodorus. 
What intrigue we find in all of these stories, in all of these accounts, which, by the way, were all true. They're all true and historic. You can look every name up. You can find them in history. And the whole story is given to us hundreds of years before it happens by Daniel, who received this through an angel from God. So we may think that these people mentioned in history as well as in the prophecy of Daniel were, were pretty rotten. I mean, they were, pretty, they were pretty bad people. I mean, well, consider the person who we will be focusing our attention upon next time. And this is was going to take up most of our time in the last section of Daniel chapter 11. Now we come to the next Antiochus. Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. The type and the forerunner of Antichrist. He is the type and forerunner of Antichrist. We're going, to, we're going to spend a lot of time from verse 21 through the rest of this chapter. Uh, there doesn't seem like a lot of verses, but there's a lot to say. There's a lot to compare about what we see, not only in the prophets, but especially in the book of Revelation about Antichrist, the writings of Paul and of John and even of Peter. We're going to see all of this come together. You know, we, we hear the stories, you know, don't, don't believe everything you see come out of, out of Hollywood about Antichrist and all of that, you know. They do good graphics and stuff. <laughs> kind of scary sometimes, but it's like, hey, go back to the Bible. That's scarier. It's scarier because it's true. And if all of this history was just to point us to this one person, then this night, this night was worth it. To know that God, first of all, is in complete control of all things. And he's given us everything that we need to know about the days and times in which we live. And thirdly, these are not times for us to start playing around with the things of God. It's time for us to start taking these things seriously. As we close our study this evening, one important lesson jumps out at us as we, as we review this whole prophecy. And that is this. If you take anything home with you tonight, take this home. God fulfills His Word. God fulfills His Word. Down through the centuries, the Lord has given us prophecy after prophecy after prophecy to help us and to warn us of coming events. Many of these prophecies have already come to pass, but many still lie out in the future. They too will be fulfilled. Without question, they will be fulfilled. I want to leave you with a few verses of Scripture to, to emphasize this, to strengthen this point as we prepare for next week's study. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56 says, Blessed be the Lord that has given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise. Take note of that. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses, 
his servant. Not one word has failed. And then look at Ezekiel 12, verse 25. It says, For I am the Lord, I will speak, and the word that I shall speak shall come to pass. It shall be no more prolonged. For in your days, O rebellious house, will I say the word and will perform it, saith the Lord God. I will say the word and I will perform it. Mark his words. God will do what he says. And lastly, the words of Jesus. And he said unto them, Luke 24, verse 44, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. All these things will be fulfilled. And Daniel was a prophet of God. And even though you actually don't find in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, in the Tanakh, Daniel is not a part of the, the prophets, even though he is a prophet. So that's an interesting thing uh, when you look at the listings of, of the prophets. But in our uh, listings, of course, he is in the prophets. So there you have it. We got through history lesson unscathed, I hope anyway. The important thing is remember how much the Lord loves you. Remember how much he cares for you to give you his truth. And how much he wants you to stand on his truth and trust him with all your heart. And one last thing. Listen to the words of the Lord when he says, Be not afraid. Do not fear. For I, the Lord, am with you. Don't fear what this world is saying. Don't fear what nations and governments and leaderships and, you know, the people who are just not even paying attention to the things of the Lord. Don't fear them. I tell you this, fear the Lord. The only way that we as believers fear the Lord is that we reverence Him, that we respect Him, that we honor Him, that we worship Him, that we praise Him, and that we obey Him. Let's honor Him that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us these last couple of weeks of history lessons, but all it does, Lord, is confirm to us how how accurate, how reliable your word is because not one thing was out of place. Everything can be looked up, everything can be can be confirmed. And it just amazes, Lord God, that you have seen the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and you've given us that wisdom through your prophets, through the apostles and in your word from Genesis to Revelation. We thank you for that. But Lord, I pray, Father, that we will not take lightly anything that we as believers in Jesus Christ have to do in these last days. I I just want people to be right Lord, with you, and we all need to encourage each other. We need to pray for one another. And we need to pray, Lord God, for our nation. We need to take to heart the words that uh, were given to Solomon. And even though they, they were primarily for Israel, they, they, they're, they're for us as well. If my people, which are called by my name, 
shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. Well, Lord, we just want to be right with you in that. So, Lord, encourage us, exhort us to take to heart these things and to realize how wonderful your word is, how wonderful it is and how wonderful it will ever be. For your word never fails and your word never ends. It is eternal. Father, thank you for this. May your spirit move upon our hearts, especially those that need you and need, Lord, to lay burdens down before you so that you can lift them up tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.